Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Welcome back, everybody. Austin, guest today is uh, going to be pretty amazing. I'm excited about this. Yeah, I mean, this is the design of this podcast is to open up resources nationally, whether it's from departments, therapists, organizations. Uh, and this is one of the most important organizations I feel like in the movement for the the police side in the wellness sector. And so I'm excited for people to, to learn more about it. If they don't know already, uh, maybe learn more about some of the wellness conferences that they hold and some of the studies uh, and other things that they're doing uh, on the wellness front. I could not agree more. And I think it actually crosses over disciplines outside of law enforcement as well. I think this is an, a great conversation on wellness within law enforcement, but there's a lot of eyes looking at uh, what's going on with this. And without even delaying, let's just introduce our guest. This is Sherry Martin, the uh, National Director of Wellness Services at the National Fraternal Order of Police and actually a cop's cop. She's a, she's a cop at her core. Welcome, Sherry, to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. We are so excited to have you here and talk a little bit about wellness. Obviously, it's a passion for us here at uh, the No One Fights Alone podcast because at our core, we're advocating for mental and emotional health uh, and, and all facets of the wellness circle, all areas of wellness. But tell us a little bit about uh, who Sherry Martin is, uh, just to kick us off. How did you end up here? What, where did you get started? Man, what a story. <laughs> so, you know... I never really intended to be a cop. I'm retired from law enforcement now. Wasn't what I set out to do with my life, but you know, things go the way they do. And after four years of college, I didn't feel like going to school anymore at that point. So I, and, and I tell people I fell into it by accident, but fell in love with it after that. I was an intern at a police department in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and started my career there working for the town of Chapel Hill after I got out of school. And, um, and then, you know, moved around in my career a bit. My my brother was living in Charleston, South Carolina and said, this is a great town. You should come here. So off to Charleston, I went and spent the next 18 and a half years of my career there. My career was mostly in patrol um, because I joke that I have a short attention span and that's the literal truth. I couldn't stick with an investigation uh, for weeks or months. Uh, so my hat's off to those uh, detectives in the room because... Wow. I like to show up and solve the problem and move on to the next one. So patrol. You're an action girl. <laughs> yeah. Patrol was where my heart was. Um, and so there I stayed, moved up through the ranks, became the watch commander on the evening, on the evening shift in Charleston. Um, for those of you, you know, who have ever been to Charleston, you know what a great city it is. If you've never been, I highly recommend it. And then uh, I moved away from Charleston after 18 and a half years working there because I met my husband, who's also on the job. Uh, he's in his 30-something year now. So he um, was living in Connecticut, and so I moved to Connecticut to be with him and his three sons that he was raising from his first marriage. So when I moved to Connecticut, went from lieutenant in Charleston to patrol officer in Enfield, Connecticut, and I finished out my police career there uh, working in Enfield. So then in the middle of all that, when I was serving on, as a volunteer on the National Officer Wellness Committee and the Fraternal Order of Police, and you know, we'll talk more about the FOP in a minute and kind of how we function, but most of our people that work on our committees in the FOP are volunteering. They're working uh, active and retired cops that are volunteering their time on committees. And I was serving on the Officer Wellness Committee 
And after some projects that we did on that committee surveys that I know we're going to talk about during the podcast, um, we found ourselves in a place to create some new wellness programming within the Fraternal Order Police, and we needed someone to do that work full time. So with that, I retired from law enforcement and became the first director of wellness services that the FOP has ever had in our over 100 year history. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be sitting in that space. I guess, you know, I should throw in there during, during my time in Charleston, at some point I said, you know, one day uh, my body's not going to take this job anymore. Uh, and this wasn't, oh, by the way, what I meant to do with my life anyway. So I probably ought to go back to school. So I jumped back to school in there, got a master's degree in counseling, worked as a clinician in the VA hospital in Charleston there for a bit and uh, got some clinical experience under my belt. So being the director of wellness services is a mixture of all those things. It's my my experience, 23 years in law enforcement. It's, you know, work as a clinician uh, in my background as well. And just a love for the men and women in law enforcement that is what characterizes the Fraternal Order of Police. You know, it sounds like you were really just destined to that position. You were, you were made for that position, but you're charting, uh, you're charting new new ground, right? This is, this is a new position. This is new for FOP. And how has that been? Just you're, you're getting to kind of do everything new, start everything new. How's that been? Yeah, it's very exciting. You know, I kind of feel like if you had the greatest idea in the world about what you'd like to do with your time and your life and you, and you wrote that down on paper and then someone gave you the ability to do that, I feel like that's kind of where I am. And it feels like the perfect mixture of my experience, my education, and my passion. Um, so I feel very fortunate. I, I get up every day and I feel very lucky to to have the job that I have, to be doing the work I'm doing, and I truly love what I'm doing. Um, so yeah, it's it's awesome. Brad and I have both spoken on this before, but there's a different level of commitment when you, because we're both in recovery as well. We've uh, you know, experience mental health, uh, addiction, whatever it may be, but there is a different level of commitment that you get when you get to give back to those that you know are struggling. And, you know, it's every, uh, it's such a rarity to find somebody who has been in law enforcement then has also moved over to the mental health clinical side. And I think that that's such a, a key point for the position that you bring is somebody that actually understands both sides. It's amazing. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. So for those that may be out there that don't really fully understand FOP, because we have a lot of, you know, we get a lot of disciplines, uh, fire, EMS, paramedic, ER, um, what, what is FOP? What does it do? What does it stand for? Can you kind of speak to that a little bit? What's its mission? That's a, that's a great question. And, and I actually answer that a lot. So depending on, first of all, the FOP is over 100 years old. We, um, our overarching mission is to improve the lives and working conditions of police officers. And so that looks different depending on where you are in the country. You know, oftentimes because we are based in labor and legislative advocacy for police officers, oftentimes people equate FOP to union. And in some places, the FOP does function as a union for police officers. However, it's so many more things than that. So, for example, we are in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, um, and even have a few lodges in, in some foreign countries. And so we all know that unions, police unions don't exist everywhere. We have right to work states where police officers and other public employees cannot unionize. They don't have collective bargaining rights. So obviously in those states, they, the FOP is not their union. 
but we have several states that are right to work that have strong FOPs because they are advocacy groups. Or, you know, even at the smallest level, sometimes it's a fraternal organization where the members get together to fellowship and support each other. You know, for example, in South Carolina, where I spent all those years, uh, the FOP, South Carolina is a right to work state. So the FOP is more advocacy. They do have a, a lobbyist that they use in their state house to, you know, push law enforcement uh, issues forward. But it's a lot of support and bringing, you know, just developing programs that support police officers. So although we do wellness uh, in the FOP and we obviously do labor and we do legislative advocacy, the FOP has something like 25 national committees that work on every facet of a police officer's life from, you know, we look at border security, we have a committee on um, legal defense that provides a legal defense plan for officers. We have an officer wellness committee. We have a safety and security committee. We have basically a committee uh, for everything that's involved in a cop's life, as well as some, some charity work that we do. We have committee that works on Easter seals. We have a committee that works with uh, the Tortron special Olympics, um, and so we're doing lots of work, not just around wellness, but around kind of all sorts of things that um, that police officers work with and support and, you know, even working with the community and things like that. So it's lots of things. It's fascinating how how richly involved the uh, FOP is in the in the law enforcement game. So so if we look at this and drill down for time purposes, I'd love to spend more time talking about some of those committees. But, uh, you know, you're obviously your passion, why we have you on here, the, the wellness committee. Let's let's talk a little bit about that. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what that what that really is, what the origins of it are and then where we are today? Sure. I think our committee started maybe about 10 or 15 years ago. And back then it was called the Critical Incident Committee. And so I think it actually started just post 9-11. Um, and, you know, so what we saw is we started to see how critical incidents like 9-11 were affecting cops, right? Affecting their health, their well-being. And so we created a critical incident committee. Well, that morphed because we soon realized that it's not just after a critical incident that police officers need support and need can can benefit from wellness services. It's all the time, right? So that morphed into the officer wellness committee. Fast forward to now we're an entire division. So previously the FOP was built on that labor uh, services division and that that legislative division. Well, now wellness is a, is another pillar. Uh, of our organization. And the committee itself is made up of eight folks and me who are a combination of active and retired police officers, all who have backgrounds in peer support, crisis intervention, hostage negotiation, or some other facet that relates to mental health. Um, and then there are a number of subcommittees that work uh, under that main committee. So we're basically working with a group of cops who are developing services for other cops, which is kind of the way the entire organization works. We are cops working for cops, um, you know, whether that's got to do with legal defense or, or officer wellness. So, so, you know, some of the things that we have been able to build, it's pretty amazing. It's what, what I call our wheel of wellness. We have five different, I think, initiatives, I would call them, that we are constantly working on. And each of the committee members has a say and input into how each of those things gets developed, how it works. You know, we, we don't, as the director of wellness services, I certainly don't operate in a vacuum. I bounce off uh, everything that we do uh, on those eight folks, and they, they are um, absolutely essential to the work that we're doing. Those initiatives, what, uh, can you talk a little bit about those, what those initiatives are? 
Yeah, sure. So where do I start? Um, I guess I'll start with maybe the thing that's that we're seeing the most impact of right now. Uh, and that's our approved provider bulletin. So back in 2016, 17, we started to see, uh, as we started to talk about police suicide more, we started to see residential treatment programs pop up with first responder programs. And, you know, because we were talking more about it and, and facilities started to think, oh, wow, geez, maybe we should get a first responder military program, you know, whatever. So we started to look into those, see how they were being formed, see what the expertise was behind the program development and, and start to really kind of vet out the good from the bad. Right. Because and, and it, even though things are well intentioned, our uh, subset of the population is unique to work with. We're, we're a unique client base to work with. So there's certain skills that, you know, I as a clinician knew that those, those providers should have. Um, certainly um, my experience talking with other cops, we knew that they would not be comfortable in certain situations. And so, you know, in order to get folks to use services, we need to make them as comfortable as possible, remove as many barriers as possible. And so we started to vet resources. We started to vet not only residential treatment programs, but wellness training programs and wellness products like phone apps that are out there and hotlines for cops and individual clinicians, most especially. So what we have been able to do is we have started to create the approved provider bulletin. It's right on our FOP.net website, and it's a nationwide directory of culturally competent wellness services for law enforcement. And so, you know, sometimes people don't know what culturally competent means. It basically means that that service, that provider is competent at working with law enforcement clients. It means that they, they, you know, they have some background working with law enforcement, they understand law enforcement culture, and they have some experience that will make that uh, officer hopefully more comfortable using that service. And so what we've been able to do is um, start creating a place where officers can go and find services. If they're not comfortable using agency provided services, they can go there to that approved provider bulletin, find resources that have been vetted by nine other cops, um, you know, and, and found to be competent in working with our population. So we're really excited. We've been doing that vetting work for, for a few years now and put that approved provider bulletin website up about three or four months ago. And, you know, if you, if you go to that site now and you look at it and you say, wow, geez, there's not a provider or a program near me, it won't be long before there is. We are constantly interviewing and vetting new providers. So stay tuned because that, that uh, list and that directory is just going to grow and grow. So, and I would say probably the next thing that I would talk about is uh, how that links to the other biggest project we're doing probably, which is Power and Peers curriculum. So we received some federal grant funding a few years ago to uh, develop some peer support training for law enforcement. One thing that we know from surveying the members of the FOP is that uh, peer support is the go-to. Cops want to go, want to use peer support over and above any other service that's available to them. So we said, all right, we, the FOP, want to start putting together some teams of peers around the country that we can, um, you know, utilize in certain areas. And let's see how we're going to get them trained. So we started looking around and there were 27 different models of peer support training out there. And so we said, all right, first things first, we need to get all our peer supporters speaking the same language 
train the same way so that we have some standardization to that. So we developed the Power and Peers curriculum. It took about three years to get that curriculum developed. And now it's in the hands of the Department of Justice as we speak here in April for review. And once the Department of Justice completes the review of that curriculum, we're going to start rolling it out, teaching it around the country. We're excited. Hopefully we'll be teaching trainers and Power and Peers when summer gets here. And by the end of the year, we should have a nice group of police officers across the country trained in that power and peers curriculum. And I'll, I'll just, you know, say that power and peers is a little bit different from maybe other peer support models we've seen. I know a lot of our cops and first responders are trained in the SISM model, the critical incident stress model. This is not a competitor to that model. So, you know, if you're already trained in that, that's great. This is a completely different model. It focuses on everyday situations, everyday stressors, It focuses on forward thinking and growth out of struggle and self-care as well for the peer supporter. So there's lots of new things in there that haven't been seen before. And so I kind of equate it to another tool in the tool belt. If, you know, if you have the SISM tool in your tool belt already, Power and Peers is going to be a different tool on your tool belt. Um, So I look forward to seeing folks in those classes. What will happen then, and this is the cool thing, is that you know we still talk to officers who are, who are afraid to use peer support in their own agency. Let's say they work in a small agency, they're still worried about their confidentiality, and they're like, oh, geez, you know, I'm still not comfortable. Well, when we train uh, police officers across the country in power and peers, we're going to be able to create a network of trained peers, so that uh, once that network is set up, if an officer doesn't feel comfortable using a peer in their own department or in their own area, they'll be able to contact somebody on the other side of the country who's trained in that power and peers curriculum, who knows you know, what it's like to be a cop, but isn't going to be in their local area. And you know, there won't be a concern that they can go back and gossip, you know, whether that's real or not. We hope that peer supporters would never gossip, but uh, it, it will remove that fear altogether. So, and I guess the next thing, Brad, that ties to that is the is back to that approved provider bulletin. So, you know, let's say that scenario I just painted where a cop calls a peer trained on the other side of the country, but that cop is maybe in need of some higher level services. Maybe they need to be referred to a clinician. How does that peer on the other side of the country know how to connect that peer in need with services in their area. Hmm. Enter the approved provider bulletin. They can look up what's available in that cop's area and help them. So lots of cool stuff going on. It's pretty fascinating how it's all intertwined. It's tied together. There's uh, obviously a lot of thought been uh, been put into this. Uh, I, just to drill down on a little piece of that and well, two, two specific points that I want to draw out on that. A plug for Chateau. We work really hard at Chateau to be a FOP approved provider and are, are very proud of that. And it's no easy task, uh, but we're but we're really proud of that. That's that's my own shameless plug there. But the I, I'm glad you brought up the SISM point, which uh, critical incident stress management is what we're referring to. And having ran the peer support program for my home agency, I found pretty early on that the CISM process albeit extremely effective and a powerful tool was just one tool that was actually not enough for the peer to peer support team to actually hold its own uh, in a lot of different areas of that wellness piece. And I just find it fascinating that you're actually this power in peers curriculum is expanded to the facets of, uh, and I love the fact that you bring up self-care because so many 
was one of the things another that, that we found with the peer support program that the peers oftentimes are burnt out. They're uh, running themselves in the ground. You know, I did that myself. That's why I sit where I sit today. And I just I find it really really interesting that you have uh, put a lot of thought obviously gained the wisdom and insight from some experts in the field in this. So kudos to you. I'm excited to, to see what that actually looks like. So, well, again, I, we've got so much to talk about, but I want us to keep keep moving here because I don't want us to, to leave out the conference. So Austin and I just got back from the conference recently. Amazing conference. Thoroughly enjoyed the conference. You did such a great job. What, what were your thoughts on that? How do you feel? I'm sure you're exhausted uh, catching up from that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, so yeah, you're talking about our FOP Wellness Summit. Man, uh, that's another, that's been another great journey. So uh, we started with the FOP Wellness Summit about four years ago now. I believe the first one was 2019. And we've seen attendance double uh, since that time at the FOP Wellness Summit, which we're certainly very excited about. Our committee members get really invested in putting a, a good program together every year. For folks who might have been to other officer wellness conferences, I think one thing I'd say is that the FOP Wellness Summit feels a little bit different than some, you know, if you go to the IACP, OSW, it seems like it to me, you know, what's been told to me is that it seems a little more intimate. It seems like it's more based on the experiences of rank and file cops. What we do with that summit, we offer some optional physical fitness activities, both in the morning and in the afternoon. Then we provide, uh, we try to find some interesting keynotes each year that, you know, maybe have a personal story to tell, maybe, you know, can talk about how uh, the career in law enforcement has impacted them personally. Then we host a, a series of breakouts. And so there's lots of choices. The biggest complaint I hear is that there were too many choices of seminars that officers who attend couldn't make it to all the ones they wanted to get to. You know, And so some of them we do bring back year to year, but we change the programming every year to kind of reflect what's current, to bring in new information about wellness. We certainly include, we aim to include all of the different facets of wellness, You know, not just mental health, but physical wellness, financial wellness, family wellness, spiritual health. And we try to bring all of those things together with some interesting presenters. And then we have added in a few sprinklings of things over the years. Uh, we certainly, we have a vendor area where attendees can learn about different wellness programs, uh, different wellness providers. And yeah, great job, Chateau. Shout out to Chateau for being one of our vetted and approved providers. You know, so so they can also learn from other uh, attendees. One thing that we have tried to do is we showcase police agencies that have set up good wellness programs already. And we, we let them get up and talk about uh, how they got their wellness program together, you know, to give some tips, answer some questions so that you know, attendees who might be new to setting up their wellness program, getting their peer support team started, can learn from the success stories of some of the other agencies. Another thing that, you know, we bring in, try to bring in some fun things. Uh, we brought in some some massage therapy chairs this past uh, wellness summit. There are usually a lot of service dogs on hand uh, to make things a little more interesting. And then, you know, there's kind of just something for everybody there. Uh, lots of opportunity, I feel like, to fellowship at the FOP Wellness Summit, uh, maybe than some of the larger ones, because ours is a little bit more of an intimate setting. You know, to me, Brad, uh, what I love most about the FOP Wellness Summit is that it's put together by a bunch of cops. So we don't typically do a call for papers for that uh, summit. Like you see other conferences, we'll ask folks to put in proposals. We don't typically do that. What we do is we gather as a committee 
of nine and we bounce ideas off of each other. We brainstorm and we call in our experiences over the past year, things that we're hearing from our fellow officers, things that we're hearing from membership, leadership, you know, what's current in the, in the policing environment. And we come up with a series of topics that we think are going to be relevant for that year's summit in uh, the attendees there. And then we find the best people we can to come in and, and speak to those topics. So it's a little bit different format than maybe some of the other wellness conferences, but we love it. And uh, we can't wait until next year. It's usually at the end of January. We don't have a date yet for 2024, but I can just about guarantee you it will be sometime between the last week of January and the first two weeks of February. So stay tuned for information on the 2024 FOP Wellness Summit. I, I want to throw in too something that we do that I haven't really seen elsewhere. About three years ago, we instituted the FOP Wellness Professionals Forum. And what that does is the day before the summit starts, we bring together wellness professionals, so clinicians, those who are working in inpatient programs, to network with each other and learn from other wellness professionals. So typically there's a one-day seminar. Uh, we bring in four or five presenters who are usually other police psychologists or therapists who work with law enforcement. Uh, we have had some peer support team leaders and things like that come in and talk about programs they developed within their agencies just to educate those clinicians and providers who are working with law enforcement about what's currently going on and, and, and allow them the, the opportunity to network and learn from each other. They also are invited to be part of the wellness summit. So they can stay then and network with the police officers and family members who are attending the FOP wellness summit to kind of further build out that network and, and break down some of those barriers that they still exist between service providers and cops. Yeah, that's, that's one of the pieces that I thought was most important. So uh, I have been to the conference for the last three years. Um, I think I missed the original one uh, or the very first one, but that professional's piece seems so important. So our clinical director does attend that every single year. And what it does, I think, it, and it does it by design, is allow you know these people that have been working in this field learn more about you know what's some of the up-to-date approaches that they're using, whether it's with trauma, mental health, uh, depression, suicidality, any of those type of things, there is not another conference that does that. We have attended everything and anything under the sun across the country, and no one else takes the time. And it's a level of commitment, right? Because it started off really small, like to get the buy-in from the the clinical background. I think it, three years ago was the first year Yep, and it was low numbers. And then every year it's just grown and grown. And then you know, there's portions of that, like Gil Martin's window of tolerance. Well, that that has become an integral part of our program because that that first initial part was learned at the wellness conference a few years back. And so that's the impact that that is having is, you know, even though it's not direct, you know, officers coming in and learning about it, it's the people that are helped teaching them these skills, the understanding of how to work through the stress and the anxiety and the job itself, because that's a left out portion is is the cultural competent clinicians that are doing the back end work. And and that's a really cool thing. But then also you have you've also seen how it grows like Indianapolis does a presentation on their peer support, you know, team, it seems like every year. And the first year they did it, I think there was maybe 30 people in the room for that one, maybe a little bit less. I mean, last year, it seemed like there was a, a few hundred two two or 300 people in that main room, I sat in and listened. And I mean, it was amazing to see the questions that people were asking because they were all so relevant to both big departments and small departments and how they operate, you know, what their 
um, you know, the way that they deal with critical incidents, everything uh, was being asked. And it was great to see people understand and get to take that back with them. And people, they don't do that either uh, anywhere else. Yeah, we, we really like that piece of, of, you know, because here's the deal. I mean, cops learn from each other, right? I mean, we ask each other everything from who's your doctor to who mows your lawn, you know? And so I, I feel like there's no better way for cops to learn than to learn from each other. They, you know, they trust each other the most. They can speak the same language. You know, we've been able to to build off of that. And you're right about the professionals forum. You know, when we started it, it was hard to get that buy-in from, and, it, and then we were fighting COVID to get folks to even attend. I know that I, th I think it was the first or second wellness professionals forum. We were one of the first conferences to come together uh, at the end of COVID to actually meet in person. And so people were very tentative uh, about getting involved in that. But, you know, what's even, what's exciting is that now, with the development of the approved provider bulletin, we expect that that attendance at that professionals forum, especially is going to continue to grow because we are building now a network of clinicians around the country, right. And other providers where they can come together and learn, you know, what's happening on the other side of the state or on the other side of the country, uh, you know, and even getting in front of things. So another thing that was cool about, the 2023 summit, get, talk about getting in front of things. We have seen a surge of conversations about mandated mental health visits, right? So these are popping up around the country. Some states have mandated them already that police officers go to annual wellness. Some people are calling them checks. We prefer the word visit um, because the, the, the idea is for the police officer to get comfortable with being in a clinical space, right? So we had a panel discussion there uh, at the summit with a lawyer. And because we are at our heart, a, a an organization that is attuned to officers' rights, we had a, a labor representative there, two police psychologists on that panel, and a policymaker from the federal government um, talking about what wellness visits should be, because what has happened is, you know, even though they've been mandated in some states and other agencies have implemented them as a policy or practice, we still see lots of states or agencies that haven't yet got there, but they're going to. Uh, we feel like this is a trend that's going to continue across the country. And we wanted the folks in attendance at the summit to know what a wellness visit should be, what it should look like, what it should not be. It should not be something that's evaluative. It's not a fitness for duty uh, evaluation. It's meant to be something that breaks down those barriers barriers and the stigma uh, with having a relationship with a, with a mental health clinician and providing some education, right, about stress and mental health and, and things like that. It's supposed to be a benefit for the officer and not something that they should be worried about. So we wanted uh, those leaders in mental health to, to, you know, to get knowledge, to know, and get involved in the process of crafting what those wellness visits are going to be for their people. Well, on a personal note to the summit, I just find it fascinating that it's the intimacy, I think was the word you used earlier, uh, has, has it, it's very genuine. It's very, uh, it's very real and, and tangible. I mean, the folks that you bring are uh, obviously transparent and heartfelt uh, all the way from, you know, our colorful Chris friend, Chris Gallen to, you know, uh, it was such a joy to see Dr. Salfati running around there. Just so many great people that you, uh, a lot of these uh, summits or conferences, they're, 
it's it's more formal it's a little more pomp and and things going on there that really has a maybe a disconnect feel to it the fop summit uh national summit was not that way it was very uh friend oriented very very uh very much a welcoming environment so well so with that being said what is the let's let's move to the survey this this survey is fascinating and i and i feel like fop is pretty proud of this survey what are what are some of the thoughts with uh sherry martin and the wellness team on the survey and how we're going to use that survey yeah thanks for asking about that and thanks for the comments about the summit it's it's glad you know i'm really glad to hear uh that that was the feel cuz that's really kind of what we're going for so let me just say uh i think we've all heard the term there's power in information right knowledge is power and this is kind of this is where it all began for us. So in 2018, uh, when I mentioned that I was a working cop volunteering on the officer wellness committee, we were approached by NBC, New York, New York news. Um, and so people go, wow, media approaching the police. This is, you know, so this is, you know, pre George Floyd, uh, pre all of the things where the media blew up, uh, with, with police sentiment, but a team of journalists from NBC, New York came to us. They had done a survey with the International Association of Firefighters, the IAFF, and they w- they wanted to tell the human story of being a first responder. And so they had gotten such a good response to the survey they did with the IAFF. They came to the FOP because we're the largest organization of cops in the world. And they said, hey, you know, we want to do this survey with you guys. And the people on the officer wellness committee, what I would call wellness geeks like myself, we were like, oh yeah, this is a great opportunity to tell our story, you know, to talk about officer mental health, to talk about how important it is. And then the the officer's rights folks in our organization were like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You want to do what with the media? You know, so we had to take a step back and go, oh, yeah, I guess that's a good point. We should really dig deeper. So fortunately for us, we met with the journalists from NBC. They were peer intentioned, really wanted to tell the human story uh, and the human side of what it's like, the impact that the job has on police officers. So we really turned out a, a great uh, survey product. And they got a great story that they told about, you know, how the job impacts us as people. But more than that, I think what it did for us is there was such a, a response to that survey. And, and, and by that, I mean the number of police officers who took the time to respond, that it really told our organization a lot about how important mental health and wellness was to police officers. They wanted to talk about mental health. They wanted to talk about the impact the job was having. They wanted to talk about how troubling police suicide is. And so we said, all right, this is something that we need to make a priority. And then we started to talk about how we could build programs in the FOP to fill some of those gaps we were seeing in service, service usage. And as we started to talk about building out those programs, the ones I really just described to you, you know, earlier in the podcast, we were able to secure some federal grant funding to to help us build those programs faster. So it really propelled, that survey propelled everything that we have done. And so we were like, all right, light bulb. If, if that survey told us so much, it's very important that we continue to keep our finger on the pulse of what's happening with law enforcement. It's, it's, it's vital that we continue to pay attention to not only prevalence of mental health issues in law enforcement, but also which services are working and which aren't, and what do cops want, and you know what is it not necessarily not helping them? So, we decided that we were going to survey our membership every two years, and so in 2021 we did the first biennial critical issues in policing survey, and we asked not just about mental health issues, 
We asked about critical issues going on right then in the country. You know, we were at the end of the pandemic or in the middle of it, really, in 2021. You know, George Floyd incident happened. There were all the protests against police, calls for defunding, lots of issues swirling around law enforcement. And we wanted an idea about how those things were affecting officers, how that how it was affecting not only their well-being, but their motivation to continue doing law enforcement, their motivation to stay in the job, you know, and, and kind of maybe figure out how we could intervene and decrease the stress level and the impact of those things on law enforcement. So we looked at all kinds of things. We looked at, you know, physical health in that survey. We looked at suicidality. We looked at what services were available to cops. We looked at what services they were using, what they found effective. Uh, We looked at things like organizational justice. So how fairly did they believe they were being treated within their own police agency? Their perceptions of how the community uh, was looking back at them. What did they think the community thought of police and law enforcement? And we've learned so much from that 2021 survey. Uh, We have not yet, but it's coming soon, published a comprehensive report of all the findings. But what we have been able to do is we've been able to pick out pieces of the information, look at how variables have interacted with each other, and make some conclusions about how organizational justice helps lessen the impact of those stressors. Which stressors are, are, are stressing cops out the most? Is it critical incident related? Is it operational related? Or is it organizational stuff that happens inside the four walls of the police department that's stressing cops out? Um, we've been able to talk about how uh, availability of services decreases stigma right? Because the more services we have, the more we're building a culture of wellness and it decreases stigma when cops use those services. So some very important things that we've been able to do with that survey and more to come because we are going to repeat an iteration of that survey every two years. So the 2023 survey, we're starting to develop now and we're going to continue to track things like rates of suicidality, use of services, you know, which services are working for cops, which aren't, because we want to make sure that we stay on the right track with developing services that are actually going to help. But then we're going to look at some of the things that are really facing law enforcement right now. And if we talk about it, Brad and Austin, what's probably the most critical thing we hear right now when we talk about law enforcement? Recruitment? Yeah, right now everybody's leaving the force. Yeah, right. So we're going to drill down on that in the 2023 survey and look at, you know, what makes people stay and what makes people go, because we need to provide some feedback to the field and and figure out how we, how we solve this problem. Not to bring our conversation down, but just to give a tip of the hat to the, our recent loss, which is that uh, recruit that just came out of the Academy. It was killed 10 days after graduation and which brought up the whole, you know, the retention issue. And we were, we were talking about, you know, people are, leaving and we're not keeping up agencies are just we we hear this a lot from agencies and of course we see this a lot with clients coming in you know i'm working this number of hours and it's twice what i was working five years ago and and people are really tired they're really just exhausted and yeah uh, that's not just the frontline folks that's executive leadership down that are they're just they're just really exhausted and frustrated and and so i'd be i think that'd be a fascinating endeavor to see what those results would be and really to to find out what that so if we look at that you know the survey as a whole and i'm sitting here looking at it there's four bullets that you brought out as a on the, on the front page as key findings you know there's was there any of these i, I know that says key findings these four bullets but 
Sherry, was there anything that just like you weren't surprised at, or I'm sorry, you were surprised at? I mean, some of these things are obvious. Like, you, you know, you're in the culture long enough. You're like, yeah, I knew that was coming. But uh, was there anything that just jumped out at you that thought, well, I did not see that coming as a feedback from the nation as a whole? Yeah, actually, there's a couple things I could speak to. So one, I think it maybe was not a surprise to me, but it seems like it has been a surprise to folks when I tell them about it, is that, you know, we talk all the time about the impacts of trauma and critical incidents. Um, and we often as a profession point to that as the reason why officers might be struggling. It must be the trauma, right? It must be those critical incidents. And while critical incidents and traumatic incidents certainly cause issues, for first responders, those organizational stresses and operational stresses are just as high. So we looked at 20 different critical incident related stressors, 20 different organizational related stressors and 20 different operational. So to give you an idea, critical incidents, obviously we know what those are. Organizational stresses are things like perceived favoritism or you know what seems like unfair promotion practices or unfair discipline. Operational stressors are going to be things like fatigue or too much paperwork. The number one stressor for law enforcement, as they rated when we compared all those three categories of stressors, was an organizational one. Actually, sorry, operational one. It was staff shortages. Number one stressor for cops. Number two was having a colleague killed in the line of duty. So, you know, that's critical incident related. And among those top five, there were two critical incident related. The other three were related to operations or, or the organization itself. You know, and, and to me, that didn't come as a shock because although I was witness to critical incidents during my career, certainly have seen, you know, many traumatic things, the most stressful times, if I look back on my 23 years in law enforcement, the most stressful times were when I was in a promotion process or when I was in a discipline process. And, you know, did I say the same two things, discipline and promotion? Not at the same time, obviously, but, you know, um, those were the most stressful times in my career. And, and you know, it's a different kind of stress maybe than being involved in a critical incident, but we can't discount those, those other sources. The other thing that has to do with suicidality, and we looked, you know, we asked about suicidal ideation, suicidal planning, and suicide attempts. And I think we know that, you know, the danger zone for stress levels in law enforcement is in that usually in that 10 to 15 year uh, period, because you're kind of in the thick of it then, right? Most of our cops in that 11 to 15 years on are in the thick of it. When you get toward the end, you can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and at the beginning of your career, you're still kind of in that honeymoon period. But what we did see was a lot of endorsement, I think a lot, uh, of endorsement of suicidal ideation in that in that one to five years on the job period, something that maybe we hadn't seen before. And so we're going to, you know, we're going to take a look at that again. We're going to track that again and see if that continues, because that's concerning, right? If we got folks that are new on the job and, and feeling like that, we need to drill deeper into that. I think that'd be a fascinating endeavor to, to explore from several standpoints, maybe a, maybe a generational issue uh, as, as it's a younger generation. There's, there's arguably, you know, uh, I have uh, young boys, 26, 28, uh, young adults. And, and I mean, these, these young boys have known nothing other than war their entire life, you know, so there's a, there's external factors involved in that generation. But I, but I find, uh, I also want to point out, uh, maybe speak to the, to the operational 
uh, points and bullets that you said were your top five, you know, those, those types of things arguably are preventative. And I don't, I don't want to point the finger at anybody, but the reality is uh, now that we identify those, we may be able to do something about them. Uh, critical incidents, we, you can't, you can't gauge those. There's no way to, there's no way to know those are coming. That's just the reality of, of our work. It's just the reality of our uh, livelihood, but the operational and administrative uh, issues. I think it would be fascinating to see what some of those are and see how some of the agencies respond to them. And kudos to FOP for really diving into that, you and your team for diving into that, for looking and, and giving some feedback to these agencies and say, hey, be well aware of this. This is what's happening to your people because we know that stress, external stress uh, is just as impactful on the lives of people and these officers and their families. You know, vicarious trauma and vicarious stress that comes home is just as impactful as uh, some of these large trauma, large T trauma things. You know, that's the sexy thing, you know, the, you know, the big, the big trauma items, but the stress is really killing a lot of our officers. Uh, So I, I find it interesting that three of the five are operational in nature. Yeah, you know, and I guess one other thing I'd throw in there too, Brad, is as we talk about, you know, PTSD among first responders and the fact that we point to PTSD frequently, we actually find that diagnoses of depression and anxiety are higher uh, among law enforcement than is PTSD. P- PTSD is a very complicated diagnosis. I mean, it's it's you really have to have a lot going on to, to be diagnosed with PTSD. Not that depression and anxiety diagnoses are not. But a lot more of our cops have anxiety and depression than they do PTSD. And so I think that we often overlook that too. And it's just as deadly. The PTSD is a complicated endeavor to to get a diagnosis. And it's thrown around a lot. It's a pretty commonly overused, arguably overused term. Uh, but anxiety and depression, is, the stressors of the job are mountainous. And you tackle in what's happened over the last two, three years, far back as you want to go last five, you know, I've been retired, retired in 2018 and it was getting not fun then. And it's, it's just progressively gotten a little bit more heavy and difficult. And, uh, when you don't have that kind of that support or perceived support in, in the public eye, uh, it starts to lose its luster. Now you have recruiting issues. So, so thanks, thanks for that. That's chasing a rabbit down the whole, uh, you know, what's the big takeaways from the survey, but I think what I heard you say a while ago was the the what's next is really releasing a lot of the full gravity and weight of of the benefits of that. What when can we expect to look at some of that? That I don't want to put you on the spot there, but are you looking at being able to deliver that uh, anytime soon? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's gonna it should be up in the next couple of months at any rate because. Um, Listen, we uh, we see that how that the data that we have been able to pull out and the findings we have been able to pull out have been useful to people uh, to lobby, to create policy, to, you know, lobby for changes uh, in their agency or, or in their, you know, their locale. So uh, we certainly see how important it is for us to get that out there and it should be coming soon. We're actually well into the to the writing of that report. So you know, with all the things on the, on the table, we still expect it to be coming soon. So yeah, look for that. I mean, and definitely, you know, for, for listeners out there who are uh, active or retired law enforcement, because we include retirees in that survey too, you know, look for that 2023 survey. We won't, 
post the links on social media um, because we want to keep the data set clean. So it will, you know, go only to those who have been in, excuse me, in law enforcement. But yeah, look for that and participate in it because the more folks we have that participate in it, the more robust those findings are going to be. You know, we've been lucky to have a nationwide sample of police officers take those surveys, you know, respondents in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and believe it or not, the territory of Guam. So, you know, we look forward to a continued national, you know, we want to, we want to say what's happening across the country, not just in certain areas of the country. Yeah. As a, as a kind of a little plug, I got to work with some Guam PD folks at uh, National Police Week. They're a, they're a real treat. They're a unique, uh, they're a unique bunch. They're a lot of fun to work with. You know, as we kind of come to a close with our uh, with our podcast here, there's there's two questions I kind of want to get the uh, Sherry Martin approach on. One is uh, if an agency is looking for, you know, some type of wellness program, tidbits or help or assistance. Hey, I want to start something or I want to get rolling or maybe I've, I've started this and now I don't know what I'm doing. And where I, I, I feel like FOP would be a great asset to that. Where where can they go? How do they how do they get a who do they get a hold of? Where do they start looking? There's lots of great stuff out there. So, yeah, certainly we are a resource. If you go to www.fop.net and look under the wellness tab, there's all sorts of resources there to get you started. The other thing I would I would say is that, you know, look into uh, maybe going to one of these officer wellness conferences. The IACP puts on one. Concerns of Police Survivors puts on one in the fall. And then, of course, ours is, is there in the wintertime. Look at going to some of these conferences that are put on by some of these police groups that have been involved in law enforcement for a long time. You know, unfortunately, we see folks kind of popping up with wellness conferences here and there who maybe aren't, uh, haven't been in law enforcement. It's just kind of a cool thing to do to host a first responder wellness conference. You know, do your research, go to the ones that are going to have some good practicable information uh, to take back home. The other thing I would say is that there's resources out there that the federal government provides, right? There's grant funding that the federal government provides. A lot of states now are, are uh, providing some grant funding to help agencies develop wellness programs. There's even some free resources out there. There's a program that uh, the federal government has available called CRITAC, C-R-I-T-A-C. It's an acronym. The, the CRITAC program can provide free of charge technical assistance to agencies who are trying to improve or establish their wellness program. So look into that as well. There's, there's a ton of, of stuff out there. You know, I think that's a great point. The, the three great conferences, uh, law enforcement conferences across the country. Uh, I agree from my point of view, I share that with you. It's the, uh, uh, national FOP summit, the IACP officer safety and wellness, and then cops concerns of police survivors, uh, conference in the fall. Those are three absolutely fabulous conferences that should be a must. If you're in this wellness uh, industry, in this community, uh, those are a must because the uh, just the networking alone of sharing, saying, hey, I've got I've got some issues. What do you think? Because generally there's somebody who's been down that road. If, if you need the assistance, there's somebody who has tackled that problem uh, somewhere else across the country. Well, with that, Sherry, lastly, what's uh, what's the What's the next steps for the National Wellness Committee? Anything on the horizon that's exciting or just keeping up the great work as is? So many things on the horizon. Um, so we're looking at rolling out that Power and Peers class, like I said, as we start to train peer supporters across the country. That's exciting. We're going to continue to develop that approved provider bulletin and you know add more resources to that. That's an ongoing thing that we're going to be doing for as long as we can continue to find them. You know, we, we don't have any... Um, any anticipation that we're going to stop seeking out culturally competent services for law enforcement anytime soon. 
course, that that survey, the 2023 survey will be out in August um, for, for folks to take that and participate in that. And we're looking at maybe developing some some family wellness programming going down the road. The FOP does have a national auxiliary um, that supports our FOP members as well. So we're looking at maybe developing, working with our auxiliary to develop some family wellness programming that we can build on the future because we have really learned to how important families are to the support of law enforcement officers. So um, maybe looking at something, you know, that and a few other things, maybe we'll see, Brad. That's actually fascinating. I love the, uh, and probably I'm glad you brought up the auxiliary program because it's a humongous piece of the FOP program. Uh, again, got to get to meet and know a lot of them, the great ladies up at uh, National Police Week, such a great program, but that family programming, uh, that's powerful. Love to stay involved in that. Maybe we'll have to have you on when you get that stood up and, and give us a talk about that. So, well, Sherry Martin, thank you so much for coming on and being a part of this uh, and educating all of our listeners on what the great things that the National FOP uh, Wellness Division is doing. So thank you very much. Thanks, Brad. Thank you for listening to this segment of No One Fights Alone. We want to give a special shout out to our sponsors of this episode, Chateau Recovery and First Responder Trauma Counselors. Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues, it addresses the why. Each of their trauma-trained and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the county to treat responders and veterans, in fact it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. First responder trauma counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour, all-badges, all-uniforms, all-scrubs, educational experience helps you create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. FRTC's National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent licensed behavioral health clinicians, who teach from lived experience not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive, educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details go to their website 911overwatch.org or contact First Responder Trauma Counselors at 970-222-4193, this could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.